This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, and today I am joined by Nicole Yang and of The Athletic, Jared Weiss. Jared, how you doing, man? Do they not say .ag at the end of Bet Online anymore? Because things have changed. Things have changed. The times are changing, man. There's no question. I mean, good for Bet Online that they're big enough that they don't have to put their German suffix or whatever you call the .you know .ag at the end. My wife made some money on Bet Online uh, betting on the Super Bowl. So really, there's a little oh, plug for you. Good for uh, her. She wanted to bet on uh, on Tom Brady to win. He obviously a reasonable. He when vote, I asked yeah. her who the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs was. She said, Lipzig, you know, you should know this. <laughs> so she definitely knew what she was doing. So I wish just I... all just all to say that sports gambling is all about skill and nothing to do with luck. <laughs> all of that is to say that I wish I'd put all of my money on that instead of GME. But here we are. And uh, the Celtics are they're Celtics back, are baby. Again. They're fixed. Uh, bet on the Celtics to win every game for the rest of the year after they uh, defeated the uh, Denver Nuggets. I think that's fair to say. They faced a team whose bench was completely depleted and narrowly beat them. I would say that means that everything's fixed. Yeah, so obviously we are uh, talking about Celtics Nuggets. Celtics beat the Nuggets, I believe, 112 to 99. I don't have the box score in front of me. Oh, you got it. You got it. Nikola Jokic went absolutely crazy. Uh, 43 points on 23 shots. Celtics had absolutely nothing for him, but... The Nuggets had absolutely nothing for the fact that five of their top rotation players were all out tonight. Pretty tough hit for both of you guys. I mean, what, what do you take away from this one? Obviously, you know, good for the subjects to get back in the win column, but somewhat shorthanded uh, Nuggets team here. Tom predicted, I think maybe two episodes ago that Nicole Jokic was going to do, quote, disgusting things to the Celtics. And he <laughs> did quite literally that. They had no answer for him, but at the same time, Jokic has been so good this season, MVP caliber good, and a lot of the shots he was making, like, it wasn't really a result of the Celtics not having, like, an answer. It was just, like, that is an incredible shot by Jokic, and any team would have trouble defending that. So, that being said, 43 points on, I think, incredibly efficient shooting. How many shots did he take? 23. Yeah, that's a very impressive night, and maybe they could have done a little bit more to temper that, especially given the fact that five of their nine rotation players were out, so you would think that they would just hone in on Jokic and sort of force the rest of the crew to contribute. But overall, a win is a win. They really needed this. And it would have been, I think, more embarrassing for them to lose to a depleted Nuggets team than to (laughs) narrowly win. So and Brad Brad Stevens, just to to that point real quick, I mean, Brad Stevens did say after the game that even when Jokic had 29 points at halftime, um, you know, they still didn't really want to double him or try to take the ball out of his hands because he's so good at passing. Like he'll just start like spraying the ball everywhere. So like it was kind of a, all right, Jokic is going to get his and, you know, see if these other <laughs> see if these other bums around him, like Michael Porter Jr. going 0 for 8, uh, see if they can do anything. 
this is kind of crazy to say, but I didn't think they did that bad of a job on Jokic in this game. For a guy that had 40 plus points, I thought they did an okay job. Because if you look at how many points did he have in the first quarter, he was in the he was in he was up in like the mid 20s basically, yeah. and most of those baskets were pretty well defended post ups where Tristan Thompson is bodying him and has a hand straight up. But unless you're seven foot two, you just don't really affect Jokic that much. You have to push out the catch really far, which is the one thing that I think Thompson wasn't doing that well, frankly. But it wasn't really until Time Lord comes in at the end of the first quarter. And the first play that he's out there, Jokic gets the ball and pump fakes, just knowing that Time Lord is going to jump. Time Lord's going to jump all the way to Denver as long as you pump fake him. It is insane that this guy, I've never seen anyone in the history of the sport bite on pump fakes as much as Time Lord does. And his credit, you know, he makes a bunch of defensive mistakes, but he always works his way out of it. That's the reason why he's still in the rotation um and you know and is a pretty playable guy but so we were watching the game i just like i felt that thompson did a pretty solid job early on and it wasn't really until rob got out there that Jokic i felt like was really kind of in control as opposed to really having to grind his way out but you know rob did an okay job against him i guess as well as i could have expected from rob to do um but the play that i really love from Jokic, because Jokic every night has at least one play that just makes you laugh like just like laugh out loud and it was late in the third quarter when i think he was posting up thompson like kind of in the middle of the paint and he just kept spinning around and just spinning and spinning and he just like spins all the way around looking to pass it to someone and doesn't have anyone so he just spins does like a full 360 pivoting and then he just like shoots like a terrible fadeaway and of course he switches it that's what I love about Jokic. Like nobody can pivot the way that he does. He just keeps like spinning in circles off of one foot until he finds a shot or a pass. And he just he's mystifying in that way. He's mystifying in a lot of ways. I mean, he is he is otherworldly talented. The broadcast kept comparing him to Larry Bird. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if a Boston broadcast is comparing somebody to Larry Bird, like it's you know, it's, it's pretty high praise. But like you can kind of see their point. Like, obviously, you know, like he's clearly like much bigger and, and, uh, but like in terms of like seeing the game so far ahead, um, like he does in terms of just like being kind of a, a scorer in so many different ways and also having so many different kinds of passes, like you can kind of see at least the statistical similarity there. I would actually say he actually plays a similar style to Larry Bird, which is kind of just shows how much the game has changed now that. Bird was, I guess, kind of a small forward, but also a power forward for most of his career. But back then, they were playing what was kind of like a, they called it like, kind of like a two, three offense, where it would be just two guards out on like the elbows. And then there were like two forwards in the center down in the post. So Larry Bird, especially early in his career, played out of the post for the most yeah. part. So he actually played a really similar manner to Jokic, and it wasn't kind of until later in his career that it became more of like a ball-handling wing. But even back in the 80s, wings didn't really handle the ball nearly in the way that they do now. So they're actually, besides the fact that they're big, tubby white guys, or I shouldn't say tubby for a bird, but like big, pasty, non-athletic white guys uh, that everyone thinks aren't actually good until they play them, there were a lot more similarities between the two than just that. Kind of funny, uh, Jokic is taking like, 3.73 pointers a game and in the 86 87 and 87 88 seasons bird took over three uh three pointers a game so even there like like the, the shot profiles are they've got some similarities there as well so i feel like on the last episode tom and i were pretty negative maybe very negative some would say about the celtics because they sucked yeah yeah because they sucked. Sure. several people have told us that we were very negative they were a terrible basketball team. You should have been negative. I don't want to be too negative this podcast either. So maybe we can just air out 
maybe the negative things right now quickly and then move on to maybe some of the more positive developments from today's game. Tatum didn't play a great game, but like I thought he was a lot better in the second half. Like I felt like he, you know, kind of found his footing a little bit. Kemba was relatively quiet. The Celtics DNPCD Grant Williams, and that's that's kind of strange. At the same time, like, like at some point, these rotations are going to have to shorten anyway. So I don't know. I mean, I, like, were there like super glaring negatives to you guys? I would just say the beginning. Like they got off. Oh well, yeah, I mean they started start. real bad. Yeah. yeah, and I think it was a really alarming, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, are we headed for a similar outcome here?" Like the three straight air balls, and then Tatum and Jalen taking like a little bit to log their first field goal attempt and things like that but they quickly turned it around so i mean i like this game a lot because you had for one the celtics doing a normal rotation where only two centers are playing so well-spaced lineups i thought it was really interesting that grant didn't play because for one this this in this game they just had jamichael green otherwise there were no other power forwards on the court jamichael green is just a spot-up player and a rebounder so you don't really need a power forward to guard him you can guard him with the wing pretty much I thought it was really interesting that Grant got the DNP because Grant's been really good, I think, over the past few weeks. He's been really solid for this team and he's really reliable. But it tells me that Stevens was really committed to getting as many ball handlers on the floor as he can. And this was a really good game for Pritchard. Pritchard just continues to move the ball really well. He's playing really well in transition. And when they're swinging the ball to the other side after a Jalen Brown kick out or whatever, he's able to either shoot it or he can attack and actually make a play, you know, play make. And that's something that Ogilvy really struggles with. It's something that Grant's not bad at. He's just like, he can't really drive and kick. He can just kind of like attack a closeout and find a way to hand the ball off or something like that. But it's not quite create the kind of flow that really punishes a team. So I will say real quick about that. He's thrown, I think in like the last couple of weeks, he's thrown at least two baseline passes uh, when he's like, like attacked to close out mm-hmm. and like whipped the baseline pass to the opposite corner, which is pretty impressive, but largely, obviously I, you know, hundred percent agree. And then the other thing I would say is we got another Jeff Teague DMPCD, right? We did. That's not, that's not good. <laughs> I think it's relieving for many Celtics fans who are tired of seeing him not being good, but it's problematic that the dude that they signed who, I mean, he has a very specific playoff purpose and that they want him to be out there to just like get buckets in the playoffs basically because that's like a thing that happens every year in the playoffs where you need your backup point guard to score 12 points in one game for no reason. Shane Larkin, Brad Wanamaker, all those guys have always done it. So they're going to need him to do that. But like the fact that he's not even playing, I mean, I guess it's a testament to just what Pritchard's done, but it's like they need this guy to be good and to be in the rotation. They need more of these guys that can dribble the ball and can shoot the ball. They got by without him in this game, but they're not going to, consistently win if Pritchard's like the only guy coming off the bench that's able to handle and, and pass which we'll see maybe I mean Neesmith had a good game so maybe Neesmith will continue to be a part of it hey Jared do you think that role is still available for Jeff Teague like do you think they're still holding out for him to play during the playoffs I mean if he's still here at that point <laughs> maybe um I, I think when they let Wanamaker go and they brought in Teague they knew that they would need a versatile three and D point guard and they wanted a point guard that could really create off the dribble and create his own shot, run, pick and roll. I think they were hoping that somebody from like Boog or Carson Edwards, people in the book, or maybe even Pritchard, like one of those guys would step up, but they think they always intended for Jeff Teague to be one of the people that would take the pressure off the offense. Cause right now, Without Marcus Smart, they don't have the backup point guard that runs the offense right now. So they're missing Teague more than anything. And Pritchard, thankfully, is doing a pretty solid job. But I'm a little skeptical that Pritchard's going to be able to handle playoff defenses. I think he's going to need to play off ball for the most part of the playoffs. So they're going to need someone else besides Smart and Kemba to run point 
just for like a few minutes a game during the playoffs. And Teague needs to be that guy or they got to cut him and they got to get somebody else. I got to like, let's wait and see what happens with Pritchard. We're only like 20 some games into this season. Like I think there's like a real chance that he kind of works himself into that. I know that's like, you know, playoff basketball is completely different. Um, and that's, you know, going to be a huge hit for a rookie. But a lot of the stuff that he's doing feels pretty sustainable, you know, over, over the course of the season. And, and I wonder if, uh, you know, if some of it might translate, especially if they can get like a good seed, which we'll see. I, I have no idea how this is going to like. <laughs> well, hey, they're really... terrible and they're still in fourth place. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it's like it's not out of the question. And like, presumably Marcus Smart will come back and like that feels like it's possible. So, I mean, if they get like a good seed and they have a team that like Pritchard can kind of work out some of the kinks against, maybe he is the answer. But Teague clearly has not been and that that will be a problem. Whatever you could have reasonably expected from Jeff Teague, it is a problem that he can't, that he can't, that, that he doesn't seem to be able to be that. One of my major positives was what Jared led with was they only had two bigs available because Tice was out and it worked out just fine. Like the three big dilemma, just like Tom has said in the past, handcuffs Brad to a point where I don't know if you need all three playing. Like I think that they can operate just fine with Time Lord and or Tice or Thompson. Yeah. So no, you I'm want you want Time Lord as the backup big coming in no matter what. And you want, yeah. I mean that makes sense. Better. I don't really care. Like I honestly don't really care. Like well, I think what... I think Tice has been really good this he's having another really, really good year yeah. that should be starting clearly. I think yeah. I, I think, think the ideal situation is Tice and Time Lord. I don't really think they needed Tristan Thompson. I think I get why they think they needed Tristan Thompson because they thought Tristan Thompson would be like the center that could like bully and like be the bruising center, but that hasn't really proven to be the case. I think they would be well served trying to offload one of their centers. And if you need a center to be salary, I think you, you know, make it Tristan. And I think if you need a center, like who might entice the other team to make a deal, like maybe it's Tice because like Tice, I think would really help a lot of teams. Um, he's a good player. I feel like we're veering into negative again here. The point is that the bigs uh, were very like, were you know, perfectly acceptable. Rob makes obviously makes mistakes and he was not, you know, I mean, you just knew that like, the first pump fake that Jokic threw at him, he would jump straight over Jokic. But like at the same time, like he he brought some energy off the bench. He, he brought, I mean, he had eight rebounds in like 20 minutes. He didn't miss a shot. Like and one of those shots was a baseline jumper that he's been making more consistently. Like the the things that Rob Williams brings you, like you you can you can almost kind of predict what Rob is going to do. And I feel like that's really nice for like a bench big. Like I know what this guy's going to bring and it's something, you know, and, and I can kind of game plan for that. See, I totally disagree. You know that Rob Williams is going to impact the game. You just have no idea if that's going to be positive or negative because he brings a ton of energy. So you just, you know, he's going to be very active. You know, he's going to be moving all over the place. You know that the, you also know that the opponent's going to target him and pick and roll a lot. So he's going to have to be guarding a ton. You just don't know if his head's going to be on a swivel and he's going to be able to really map the court and be in control of everything or if he's going to get his hips turned away from the paint and then they're going to slip somebody behind him. And then it's just kind of like a turnstile all night. I think that they've gotten better at kind of predicting which teams are going to really expose him and kind of limit him against yeah. those teams. But I think that's why Tristan Thompson is here is that they know that they can count on him, especially in the playoffs when you can see, like, it's not that hard to game plan against time Lord in a playoff series. Cause you can like, you can make your adjustments after seeing how he's been guarding you and try to count on him to try to catch up to your adjustments. He doesn't have the experience or the wherewithal yet to be able to do that. While Tristan Thompson is somebody that can do that. He's gone through that ringer 
you know, tons of times, like dozens of times over his career. And he, he holds down his spot on the court really well. He like the one thing that Tristan Thompson does is he doesn't let anyone pass him. That is extremely valuable, especially in the playoffs that, you know, he's going to be in the right position and people are going to try to run into him and he's going to put his hand out and they're going to like shatter into pieces basically. So the only question is like, are they Jokic and they can shoot over him or like Joel Embiid, who we know Joel Embiid can't get that deep inside position on him that Daniel Tice has to constantly fight and get into foul trouble to try to hold off. But we know that Joel can shoot over him. So over the course of a series, Joel Embiid shooting seven mid-range jumpers a night over you, that actually might be ideal because he's not getting you in the foul trouble and he's going to shoot, like, even if he shoots 60% on those, that's still, like, a lower percentage of what he's getting between converting or drawing fouls at the rim. So I think that's the math on why they wanted Thompson here. I that That's fair. That's, that's, a, that's a strong counter. I will still maintain that <laughs> entire, like, hard-capping yourself and using the entire mid-level exception on a center when you have several relatively serviceable big men on the roster might it's, it's not what i would have done but <laughs> it was it was definitely a hard hedge on the bet against time lord and it was a recognition that daniel tice is making five million this year and then he's an unrestricted free agent in an offseason right. where he's like the third best free agent now that everyone signed their extensions this summer so danny's gonna get paid he's gonna be danny rich uh, this offseason <laughs> Very happy for Daniel Dice. We've gotten however many minutes into the podcast. We did not mention that Jalen Brown scored 27 points on 11 for 20 shooting and that he broke out of his three-point shooting slump, finished five for 10 from deep. Like he was something like, you know, three for four, four for four, something like that in the second half. He was really good from three in the second half. Let's uh, real quick. And he had like nine dimes, right? He, uh, he had five eight. assists and uh, five rebounds as well. Oh, uh, then maybe it was a Tatum that had eight Tatum or nine had eight, eight assists and six rebounds. Um, That's two pretty nice. Points. And maybe more to the point, Jason Tatum went to the free throw line eight times and went eight for eight. So some, some nice stats there from the Jays. There we go. We've said the nice thing about the good players. Kind of going down the rest of the roster, uh, Aaron Neesmith. He played 24 minutes. I thought he looked like pretty good. I thought defensively um, he was better than I expected. He didn't look like he was getting beat off the ball. He looked like he kind of knew where he was supposed to be most of the time. And offensively, I mean, look, like he took four three-pointers. He went two for four. That's good. Um, One of them was off movement, which is like kind of the whole concept of Aaron Neesmith is that he's, you know, six foot six and he can kind of shoot. He's kind of like a a J.J. Redick type offensive player and that he just like runs off stuff and and, and can really, really shoot it. He's Um, like a poor man, Sadiq Bey, basically. (laughs) So, you know, somewhere uh, Grenham just kind of woke up a little bit when I heard Sadiq Bey and then went back to sleep. Um, A a nice performance by Neesmith, a nice, uh, you know, kind of follow up to him playing with a lot of energy against Washington, but not necessarily like really doing anything. And it was nice to see the bench react very happily for one of his threes. It seems like everybody has been rooting for him. So no question. Listen, I mean, this is not a surprise at this point. We know the Brad Stevens system. You get drafted. You don't play. Everyone thinks you're a bust. You turn into a defender that doesn't do anything on offense. And then you get lots of playing time. And then you're an all-star by year five. <laughs> Unless it's you're like, it's a, it's a Terry Rozier pathway. Well, Peyton Pritchard is, is 20, what, 25 now? He's 23, right? He's old. Is he with 20 or 21 player on the roster who is actually older than me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this looks a lot like rope. Like remember last year, Romeo didn't play was declared the worst pick in NBA history. It was time to fire Danny. 
And then by February, he was the team's best defender coming off the bench. And then they got to the bubble and all of a sudden he was running pick and roll and dribbling through his legs and whipping passes. And he was so good that he tore his wrist and his adductor and completely fell apart. And now he's never going to play again, but that's fine because Neesmith is learning how to play. And that shot that he hit coming off the, the little pitch from Tatum, he turns into the shot it's not like it was contested. Like the dude was inside of his Jersey. And I, I didn't understand how he got the shot off without getting it blocked, but he just shot with the guy right in his eye and nailed it. And like, that's the stuff that Neesmith gets up to speed, keeps a quiet mind. He has the size and the skill set that you can just hand the ball. And like Redick, it's like, no matter how tightly contested it is, he's going to be able to hit it. And they need that so badly. If he's able to just like do that a little bit for the rest of the season, that changes the team a lot. So that's like the huge thing that I feel like hasn't come up in this conversation about how the team is doomed and it's time to fire everybody and just like wave and stretch Jalen Brown that like the team, we knew they were going to not be that good early in the year. They set it up that they were going to make a big move at the deadline, that they were going to be developing guys, that Romeo Langford, who's supposed to play a larger role in the bench, wasn't going to be coming back till later in the year, that Kemba Walker wasn't going to be ready till like halfway through the year. So it's like, we know that they're supposed to get better later on in the year. You know, the main question is like, can it now fall apart before them? That seems like that's not going to be a problem. And we like, we know Danny and Brad, we know that they're going to just like do whatever the fans tell them to do, as we saw with Aaron Neesmith, because all of a sudden fans, I don't know if you guys got this, but like fans started like tweeting me and DMing me and like commenting on my stories being like, like, why isn't the media demanding Aaron Neesmith play? Dude, and that then, was like, a concentrated effort. It was yeah. weird. It was like, it really did seem like it. And then somebody, I forget who it was. Somebody asked Brad before the game the other night, like, why isn't Aaron Neesmith playing? And then like all of a sudden Neesmith now is a regular part of the rotation. So my response to it was just that Brad forgot about Neesmith and just needed someone to remind him that Neesmith existed. <laughs> uh but yeah no i mean like look neesmith all, all that stuff about like you know the off-ball movement i mean that that is like legitimately what the whole selling point was of him as a prospect like he i mean he averaged like 27 like you're not average you know he averaged like almost 20 points a game you know at vanderbilt you know in, in those 13 games he played as a sophomore and i mean he probably averaged like six dribbles per game <laughs> like the dude was not like putting the ball on the floor and trying to get to the rim he was just like shooting threes and you know he was getting up like eight of them a game like he was really really gunning you know and, and that was happening in a variety of ways i like after the game today like i asked him one of the things that's kind of weird about his situation is that he is in the corner like just kind of spotting up which wasn't you know the kind of the thing there, there wasn't sort of this like drive and then kick out thing going on at Vanderbilt he he was moving a lot and I wonder if if the Celtics get a little bit more confident in him if you know you mentioned in, in the bubble Romeo was dribbling between his legs and whipping passes I wonder if the Aaron Neesmith version of that is all of a sudden he starts kind of you know running off screens he starts like cutting through the lane he starts doing all that stuff that we kind of know that that he's good at well the thing is the playbook is already baked into that because a lot of the sets that they run for Jalen Brown where he starts in the corner and they will they'll run a bunch of picks to kind of get them curling over the top that's a play that most of the bench guys can't run because they're not trusted to catch on the move because they don't shoot well on the move and they're not able to dribble off of the move so like that's why he's so much more valuable than like shemi who's shemi he can just spot up and catch and shoot really well he's good at that but when when have you ever seen them run a curl for shemi i've never seen it before he just kind of he does what's called like the lift in the weak corner. So he stands in the weak corner and he kind of just like shifts between the corner and the elbow kind of going back and forth. And that doesn't really 
the defender that's responsible for him, who's kind of like focusing on the play but knows that he's back there, that's not that hard because that defender knows he's going to be in one of those two spots. But if you got a guy back there that you can suddenly send another guy over to pick for him, he can fly out of there, and that defender who's supposed to be guarding the weak side corner, he's completely lost at that point, and that's when you start to kind of really cross the wires of the defense. So they need Neesmith to be out there because you can have him spread the floor like that, but you can also get him involved in, with uh, with uh, side actions. You know, like if Celtics fans are kind of like wondering about like what the you know, sort of the rich man's like best case scenario version is like, look at like last year's Duncan Robinson, like that, sure. you know, it wasn't like, uh, yeah, l- like you said, he wasn't just kind of drifting. Like he's like running through things. He's running off screens. He's running, you know, like kind of similar stuff um, that, that I think Neesmith could really excel at, you know, maybe down the line. Yeah. I mean, things can change pretty quickly. I mean, I don't know if it's going to change so much just because they don't practice that much these days. Like if you're not playing, you're really not playing. That's what's so hard about this year. So, but if he's getting more game time, I mean, you're seeing he looks so much more comfortable now than he did a couple of weeks ago. And you're right, Duncan Robinson's a good comp for him, um, or like not like comp, but like uh, goal comp for him. That's it, yeah. <laughs> you know, Buddy Healed, I think, because he's uh, he's not like a good ball handler, but he can dribble and attack, and he's a really good athlete, so he can get up there and finish through contact, and that's something that Heald does a lot better than Robinson does. What What do you guys take away from this game? Because because to me. Nicole and I went super negative on the last episode, like we mentioned. And obviously it was like just a, there was a lot of reason to go super negative. And I think that one of the things that I was thinking at that point was losses are kind of this zero sum game where if you lose kind of doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Like you can say, you can talk until you're blue in the face. Like, okay. Like, you know, Tatum's still coming back from COVID. Marcus Smart is still out. All these things. A loss is still a loss and people still get, you know, snippy at each other after a loss. And like people get snippy at each other things can go downhill. Like we've seen that happen before, but in that same way, a win is kind of a win. Like it's kind of a different kind of zero sum game where, yeah. Okay. The nuggets were not at full strength. Like they weren't like a great team, but a win is a win. You know, Jalen Brown and Kemba Walker are still walking back to the bench, just kind of smiling and laughing with each other. Like everybody's just in a good mood. It doesn't matter who on the other team is, you know, is out is in, winning an NBA game, I think feels good. So like, you know, I, I don't think that it's going to define the Celtic season one way or the other, but I think it's like a, a positive step, you know, like, again, it sounds like super simplistic, but just like a win is a win and it makes you feel good. I think just the, the quality of the win was very positive. Like Rob said, this was positive vibes only, obviously. This was the positive vibes win that they needed. I, what I liked about this win was just that the ball movement was really solid and that they had players off the bench that were keeping the ball flow going and they were getting a lot of good looks because of that compared to the wizards game uh like a big thing i focused on in my story after that game was like after they came out of timeouts they were trying to run plays and they didn't even know what they were doing like there was that play where uh jalen tried to like duck into the paint and time lord just like threw it away to him and like jalen and kemba were like staring uh, jason and kemba were staring at each other like not knowing what to do it was just like such a mess and it was just like everybody was off was on the wrong page what do you say is the opposite of on the same page they were on different pages one of them was right, I guess, but they were on different pages. They they were clearly on the same page in this game. That's something that scales against better quality opponents is like if you're at least knowing where to pass the ball and the guy that catches it continues to dribble and passes the ball, that's like a good sign that you're going to be good against better teams. Jared, I'm curious what you think the team should do with the TPE. They don't have to use the TPE necessarily to trade for the guy that replaces Hayward because they have Kemba. And they could trade Kemba for that new third and a half player, I guess. 
I think ideally Kemba gets better and they don't trade him because we know how Kemba affects the positive vibes only rule that Rob Williams operates by. But it's very clear they have to get a fourth player for the offense. Like this team has to win a championship in the next couple of years, which is a little early for Tatum, a little early for Brown. But with Kemba at his age and Tice, if they can keep him at his age, like they have to do it soon. They, they got to get, you know, Harrison Barnes is like solid, but he's not, he's not the ideal fit or he's not, he's not ideally as good as they could get with the TPE. You know, John Collins is really interesting. Obviously he's making a lot less than the TPE. He's like a really fascinating player who I guess I'll have a conclusion on his fit after this mini series with Atlanta. Um, I wa- I was, I did a, a deep dive on the tape with him yesterday and I'm trying to figure out if he could fit into the, um, the defensive scheme. I think it might work. It's possible. And then like Aaron Gordon is someone who I was really high on coming into the season, but then his defense was so bad early in the season that I'm having trouble. I'm still kind of doing my background, trying to figure out like, was he just like, playing that way because he didn't really give a shit and the team was just like decimated by injuries or is he just like not that good of a defender anymore i think aaron gordon would be the perfect guy because his limitations are really mitigated with the celtics like he doesn't have to handle the ball and create when he's on the celtics he doesn't have to find his own shot when he's on the celtics like he just needs to spot up and attack he doesn't have to be the primary defender like he can do they can make him just like focus on the stuff that he's really incredible at and he's like still young enough and on an ideal contract that he fits with the timeline really well so they got to hit this out of the park I, I think if they end up getting like george hill and pj tucker i don't think it's enough for them to win and then that doesn't do shit for the long term so they got to get a long-term key starter basically so Kevin O'Connor and Bill Simmons said that Nikola Vucevic would be a good fit I'm curious what you guys think about that yeah, I, I, Vucevic is someone I've been, I've had like a few people bring up and I didn't think he'd be a good fit before the season. And then he started shooting 40% on high volume from three. And now it's like, I'm pretty sure every team in the NBA would be amazing with Vucevic on it. So it's, it's tricky though, because Tice is such a good pick and roll defender and Vucevic hasn't been in Orlando and Orlando's a really good defensive team. Steve Clifford runs a really good defensive system. It's not like one of those situations where I'm thinking like he's on a bad defensive team, put him in Boston and he'll be really good. But offensively at the five, he's an unbelievable fit. If he continues to shoot the way he's shooting and pass the way he's passing. For me, if you go out and you get a big with the TPE, I, I just like, there's too, there's too many bigs on this team as it is. And I know that they're there. You do oh, they'll be of, trading. They'll be obviously trading a lot of guys. To like make things and Time happen. Lord will probably be in that trade too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, that, that's why I would lean more towards. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually very high on the Harrison Barnes fit. I think he would, I think he'd be really good. I, I think Aaron Gordon would be like a perfectly acceptable fit. Like, I think that's a good one. I think your you know, your timeline point is good too. To me, I would like, I kind of would rather go wing, go somebody like, you know, just wing, just get another wing. The wings on this team, like have been brutal. Like, I don't know. So that would, that, that would be the direction I would go. But I mean, Vucevic has been awesome. And and all your points are very well taken about his offense. Cause like he's shooting 40% for three and he can do a million other things too. I think everyone agrees. They want a wing, preferably a four, uh, like a four hybrid three, but like they can start Kemba smart Jalen and Jason. I'm fine rolling that out and trying to win the title with that starting lineup. So you put Vucevic around that lineup and you basically, at least on offense, you kind of supercharge what they do with Tice because you have a guy that just, he can do everything that Tice does as a, as a short roller, as a passer, as a pick and pop guy, who's now shooting really well, but he can, you know, Tice is shooting well on relatively low volume. I think Vucevic has taken like twice as many threes and shooting just as well. And 
you can run through the posts or you can run pick and roll with him and he can do all that stuff too. And he's like awesome at it. So now that I'm saying all that out loud, like it's probably worth the defensive sacrifice. Like you could change a defensive scheme to be more like it was a few years ago when it was like super aggressive up at the ball. And they're also going to switch a lot too. Oh, that's the one thing to forget. It's like, you can't forget with Tice. It's like Tice can also switch. Not only is he a good pick and roll defender, he can also switch. No question. I, I think for me, the, uh, the big reason why I'm so high on, Barnes specifically is, um, you know, the three, four hybrid um, that you were talking about. Like, I like that. And I, I know Marcus likes being in the starting lineup. I know he's wanted to be in the starting lineup for a while, pushing him to the bench and having like, and just shoring up your bench just by adding like a really good player to it, I think would do a lot. And, you know, and the same thing could be said, obviously of, of Aaron Gordon, that that's why I would like it. You know, it, it does kind of like extend out the, the minutes that like good players are on the floor that like, like players you definitely trust in playoff situations are on the floor. The only question is, it's not about starting, it's about just finishing. It's that, how do you finish a game? Because I do think you can finish a game going microball with Aaron Gordon because he's a, because of his rebounding proficiency and his ability to get up there and contest. Although Jason Tatum is probably your best rim protector at that point. But I don't know if you can do that with Harrison Barnes. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Harrison Barnes is like a perfectly average start, NBA, good NBA starter. He's, a, he's like a good NBA starter. And he's in his prime. And he's shooting well this year. I think a, a big part of it is just like he's shooting really well this year. And that's changed the perception, I think, a bit on him. He's not a guy that creates for himself that well, but that's fine because you don't really need him to do that again. So he's like, he's kind of more of a wing-oriented, shooting-oriented version of what Gordon gives you. I just don't think he's quite as impactful as someone like Gordon, who I, I think there's still that potential for Gordon to really explode to that next tier. While Barnes, you just you know he's going to be where he is, basically. I think with the Celtics team and just like the unpredictability of like half the roster, I'm like, yeah, but I know that Harrison Barnes is like, I know, like it, you said like the, the three point shooting, he's shooting 38%. He's a career 37% three point shooter. Like it's like, oh, I thought he was higher. I mean, he probably fell off. He was, after he a was games. Yeah, yeah. He was, I think when the Celtics played him, he was in the forties for sure. But Jared, while we have you, can you please provide a prediction on the Celtics rest of their season? Like they're going to continue to get better. I do think they're going to make some sort of acquisition at the deadline. It's going to strengthen them. So I think they're probably going to finish at the fourth seed where they are right now. I think a lot of the East is going to get more competitive. I mean, we're seeing Toronto starting to catch up. Toronto was like at the bottom of the conference for a while. And now they're starting to catch up and find their footing to a degree. So I think there's going to be more pressure. Uh, TJ Warren will eventually come back for Indiana and make Indiana even stronger. And you know, Indiana is that weird team where like, they're so talented without that, like really elite talent. So you keep waiting for them to turn into a 55 win team. And it's just like not never quite happening, especially because they have bad injury luck. But so I don't see, I don't really see them getting past the three teams ahead of them unless some sort of major injury happens. All three of those teams are better than they are. If they make a huge move, then they're probably climbing onto that tier with those other three teams. And then it's a legitimately open conference, but amazingly with all the problems that they have so far they're pretty much in the same spot we thought they were going to be entering the year i think the important thing is like when is danny ainge ever traded for someone that we expected him to trade for right so i know i think it was scal was floating jeremy grant out there and i put out a tweet saying like jeremy grant is not like realistic for the celtics and i had multiple people reach out to me telling me like the Celtics like Jeremy Grant. I watch Jeremy Grant. It's like, yeah, no shit. Everybody likes Jeremy Grant now that he's playing really well. But like, I know a lot of things public, a lot of things that like aren't public about like why Jeremy Grant very badly specifically wanted to go to Detroit. 
I was literally yeah. about to say, didn't Jeremy Grant want to go to Detroit to play for like a black run organization? Yeah. yeah, which shout out to my colleague, James Edwards, who had that feature. And most importantly, he turned down the same offer from Denver because he wanted to go be the star of his yeah. own team and prove that he could do it. It's possible that he was like, I just wanted to show people for like three months that I could average 20 a night. And then I'm going to go back to being a role player on a contending team. I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't think he's going to be interested in doing it. I don't think the Pistons are going to look at what the Celtics had to offer and be like, oh, wow. Well, how could we turn down that package of Romeo Lankford and a bunch of 25 fifth picks in the draft? So I, someone, I tweeted that out, like someone I saw reply to me today. They're like, Jared Weiss, you're full of shit. You're a garbage reporter saying that the Celtics couldn't offer enough to get Jeremy Grant. Like the Celtics could put together a Drew Holiday like trade package. I'm like, the, the Pistons don't want their trade package. The Drew Holiday like trade package included a bunch of draft picks that could become terrible in a couple of years. While the Celtics don't have that cliff that they could fall off of. They're, you know, they have Tatum and Brown locked in long-term. They have Carson Edwards locked in long-term. They're set. So like the Celtics don't really have that much asset value right now. And they have to target distressed assets or teams that are looking to accumulate assets. And Detroit, while they'd like to get a bunch of draft picks, they don't need the 25th pick in the draft for three years. And like in like a potentially solid starter, like they need a major asset. They need a building block. So Jeremy Grant's just not going to be in play. Now, when they trade for Jeremy Grant in two months, I'm going to look really stupid, but I'm willing to put myself out on the limb on this one. The, the, the thing that you're not considering and the reason why this guy uh, really had you pegged is uh, the Celtics do have uh, trade packages. Like they could, they could trade Jalen Brown and they would get Jeremy Grant. Like, <laughs> they could. They would get him. That, like they do have That's trade true. packages that could get Jeremy Grant. Should they? No, probably not. All right, guys, we can leave it there. Thank you all for uh, listening. You can, uh, you know, find any of us on Twitter, DM any of us. Jared, you got anything you want to plug? Yeah, I have an article about why the Celtics should trade Jalen Brown for Jeremy Grant. Uh, you can find that on The Athletic. You can find <laughs> on The Athletic. Uh, and uh, Jared, thanks for coming on. And we will talk to you all again later this week. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.